uh, this morning uh, in our message. Last week, uh, we took a look at the wonder of design uh, in God's plan and even looking at the DNA and how uh, each one of us are uniquely and individually knit together uh, by God. He has a sovereign plan both for our existence. We are not accidents, but rather he has designed for us to be here. He's then designed for our salvation uh, and then has a plan and a design for our ongoing transformation. Uh, this morning, as we continue to look at the wonder of God's sovereignty uh, in regards to Christmas and his plan for us, uh, we're going to be taking a look uh, at prophecy, but specifically prophecy within Scripture uh, that revealed aspects of God's plan pointing forward to Christmas and the arrival of Christ. So we have another video this morning uh, to share a, a part of that. Have you ever wondered, how do we really know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? That's a great question that many Christians struggle with. In fact, evidence that God wrote the Bible? Whenever I hear that, I have a simple question for them, and you can ask the same question. What would you accept as evidence that God wrote the Bible? What would that look like in your mind? If you saw A, B, or C, that would definitely be evidence. Well, I don't know, but I know there's no evidence. Wait a minute, if by your own admission, you don't even know what the evidence would look like, how do you know it doesn't exist? In fact, if you don't have criteria that you use to judge what counts and what doesn't, you can't really even have this discussion. Well, there is so much evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, including evidence from internal consistency, historical accuracy, scientific accuracy, and prophetic accuracy. Lots of evidence from each of those areas. Let's just take a look at prophecy. Prophecy is arguably the strongest evidence for inspiration of the Bible, and it makes the Bible very unique. You won't find any other book that comes close to the prophetic content of the Bible. In fact, 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. That's over 8,000 passages, making over 1,800 predictions, covering over 700 topics. It is phenomenal. And every single one of those prophecies has come true in every minute detail. Some are for our future yet, but all the other ones have come true in every minute detail. Let's just take a look at one. Prophecy of the city of Tyre. It's in Ezekiel 26. Tyre is north of Israel, right on the Mediterranean coast. The Bible prophesied specifically that King Nebuchadnezzar would come from the north to attack the city. Guess what happened? King Nebuchadnezzar came from the north to attack the city. Secondly, it said many other nations would come and attack the city. Guess what happened? Many other nations came to attack the city. It was also prophesied that all the rubble from the city would be thrown into the sea. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, go kill the people, destroy their buildings, set it on fire, but why would you take all the time and effort to throw it all in the sea? Well, guess what? Alexander the Great came in to attack the people, but many had fled to a nearby island. He couldn't build big enough ships to get at the people, so he took all the rubble from the city, threw it in the sea, and built a bridge to get over to the people. That's exactly what happened. And then also the Bible prophesied the city would never be rebuilt. It's in a perfect location, but it's never been rebuilt, just like the Bible says. There is a portion over there that they're calling Tyre. It's in a different location. They're just using the same name. It's not the same city. The Bible was accurate in its prophecy of the city of Tyre. Then we have messianic prophecies, the prophecies about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies during his lifetime and in his death and resurrection. Why so many? Well, if it was just prophesied that Jesus would be a man, 
Imagine how many people could claim to be the Messiah. But by fulfilling so many, he ultimately proved that he was truly the Messiah, and many of those were totally outside of his control. And so it's phenomenal the amount of prophecies we have for Jesus, and it does two things. It actually proves that the writers who wrote the prophecies were inspired by God, otherwise he would have gotten a lot of them wrong. Secondly, it proves that Jesus truly was the Messiah because he fulfilled every single one of those things. Prophecy is one of the strongest evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. And we are just beginning to scratch the surface talking about the wonders of God. It's kind of astounding to think like how much of a percentage within the scripture is prophecy and, and then pointing forward to it, to it being true. Uh, what happens sometimes is often we'll take a look at the Old Testament uh, and we'll think of it as a, a sometimes a dry, uh, sometimes exciting part of the history of Israel. Uh, you start reading through the book of Numbers and they start talking about, you know, how many golden plates for the tribe of Benjamin and how many golden plates uh, for the tribe uh, of Judah and so on and so forth. And, and then you get to the exciting stuff with Samson and uh, often can take a look at that. But uh, we don't want to take a look at the Old Testament as something that was just simply replaced by the New Testament uh, and the arrival of Jesus. Because if we take the time to, to dig into it, to really examine the way that God has designed things together, we see that there's a thread of Jesus Christ that is woven throughout the entire uh, the entirety of the Old Testament uh, coming forward uh, to his arrival at uh, you know, what we celebrate in Christmas and then even pointing forward uh, into the future. This morning for the message, I want to do something uh, a bit different than that, uh, than what we usually do, uh, in that I want to just mainly focus on Scripture. Uh, and so we've got 13 to 14 different passages that we're going to spend most of our time in. So if you have your Bibles uh, and want to pull that out, or you want to follow along on your device, uh, we'll be jumping all over the place here. Uh, again, 13 to 14 different passages, uh, reading different prophecies uh, that represented Christ, reflecting him and how he was going to fulfill that. Uh, but then also some different things for us here today. Uh, we'll start in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, at the very beginning of Scripture. But before we read this, let's pray. Father, we come before you. I uh, thank you for your holy word. I thank you that we can gather together as a church in your presence to worship you. I'm thankful that you make this word in front of us alive and active in our lives. Lord, as we just look at Scripture today and what your promises have been and how you've fulfilled them, I pray that you would minister to our hearts and to our minds. That our faith in you would grow, our, our trust in your promises would grow, our, our grasp of your great design uh, we would wonder at. In the way that you have orchestrated everything so beautifully so that your plans would be fulfilled and nothing could stand against that. Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to, to quell our anxieties or fears in that. Because if you are for us, who can be against us? And so, Lord, I pray that you guide us and you make this uh, alive to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so again, prophecy started at the very beginning uh, of Scripture. You read through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you, you hear about God speaking all things into existence and having this wondrous creation as he organized all of that. We talked about some of that last week. Uh, we have Adam and Eve living in this perfect garden that God had designed specifically for them uh, with only one rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know that story. We'll take a look at a little bit more of that in detail next week. Uh, but Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the garden, commit this first sin. Uh, and because of that, sin and death has entered into the world. Uh, and then here's God's uh, reply to them in Genesis 3.15, right after this happens. I will put hostility, and so he's speaking actually right now to Satan, uh, to the serpent who had deceived them. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, meaning Jesus, will strike your head, or he will defeat sin and death, and you will strike his heel. We found that fulfilled with Jesus on the cross, uh, and it did not kill him. It did not destroy him, but three days later rose again, which then crushed the head of sin and death. We see next that God promised that the Messiah, uh, and, and the Messiah is a, another word for Christ. Christ is the uh, G uh, Greek word meaning the same thing as Messiah or Savior or planned rescuer. You see, God starts to promise where this Messiah, where this Jesus is going to come through. Uh, we see this uh, coming in Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates uh, of their enemies. We'll just pause here for a second. Uh, God is talking to Abraham uh, at this point, and he doesn't have any children yet doesn't have one son, doesn't have any way of realizing in front of him how is this promise actually going to take place. And, and we see how that's fulfilled. But then in verse 18, it says, All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. And so in this, we see it fulfilled with the coming of Christ through the lineage of Abraham and that all nations are eternally blessed because of the forgiveness that's offered through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, uh, the opportunity for reconciliation with God. Prophecy continues in Psalm 132 uh, as it's, uh, Jesus described as being a descendant of King David. Uh, verse 11. Uh, is where it's promised, it's fulfilled. We see also then uh, in Jeremiah 23, 5. We'll read this one. It's promised in 132 as well. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will rise up uh, a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Uh, and so again, this is talking about the coming of Christ, uh, his eternal kingdom being set up. Not only was he going to be uh, from the lineage of Abraham and David, but prophecy in Psalm chapter 2 uh, actually points uh, to the Messiah being the very son of God himself. Start in verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. 
I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And so again, talking about Christ receiving the crown, sitting upon the throne, uh, ruling over all of existence uh, on Zion, the spiritual uh, capital of, of God's kingdom. Uh, and again, that he would be not just of the lineage of Abraham and of David, but also saying uh, that he would be a son uh, of God himself. We'll get to that uh, in just a little bit more. Um, so we see that he is foretold that he is going to be coming. We see many different verses that talk about it being a, a very specific time. We see Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Daniel 9, 24, and Daniel 9, 25. Uh, in Daniel, he starts to talk about the different 70 weeks of years. Uh, and we don't have time this morning to go uh, into all of that, how it comes together. But Daniel's prophecy uh, was actually very specific, uh, coming down to a time of anticipation uh, for the arrival of Christ over that 70 weeks of years. We see Galatians 4, 4 points to this by saying, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, uh, and born under the law. Uh, and so again, this acknowledgement of uh, Christ's coming wasn't just a whim. Where he's like, you know what? It's getting pretty bad down there. I, I think I'm going to step down now and, and kind of fix things a little bit. But rather, it was a design that was prophesied uh, both in Genesis, Daniel 9, other passages, that there was a pointed time when Christ would come. Through this, uh, in order to be the very Son of God, it was also prophesied that he would be uh, born uh, to a, a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel meaning God with us. We find it fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The birth of Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will be, give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7. See, the virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. This prophecy pointing forward to the salvation of mankind. Fully God, fully man, born of a virgin woman and of the Holy Spirit. Prophesied thousands of years before it happened, not even being able uh, humanly to conceive how that would happen. Uh, and even Joseph himself, as he finds his fiance pregnant and saying, I, I got to back out of this. He can't understand that it's happening, even though she tells him that an, an angel needs to come and speak to him in order to confirm to him that it's true because it's not something our, our minds would be able to grasp how God himself decided to come down to earth in order to offer up his life as a sacrifice 
for us. And yet he promised it would happen and then made sure through his plan that it would. Even the location of Jesus' birth uh, was prophesied in Micah 5 too. Bethlehem, Epiphath, you are a small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So again, Christ existing from eternity past, from antiquity, from, from ancient times, the one who spoke all things into existence was promised in Micah to become out of Bethlehem, which is where he was born. And the only reason that took place is because Herod started a census and Joseph and Mary had to travel there. And so again, God's sovereignty promising that it would happen and then causing events to take place like a census in order for his will to be fulfilled and his plan to endure. Psalm uh, 72 promised and prophesied that there would be great people or great persons coming to adore this Messiah. We find it fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And so again, they're coming and they're traveling uh, in order to, to, to view this. As I was studying through this, uh, I came up with, um, or I didn't come up, I saw this concept that, that I'm still wrestling through, uh, and I think it's really interesting, and, and in the scripture, uh, it's not explicit here in this passage, because it simply says, wise men coming from the east uh, arrived in Jerusalem. But as you look at this, uh, in the original language, in the Greek, uh, the wise men uh, are called magi. Uh, and in that Magi sense, uh, they were wise men, astrologers, uh, ones who would study, uh, and again, came out of the East. Now, if we go back, uh, and here's this uh, theory that uh, I really like the idea of, and I'm wrestling through a little bit more. Uh, you go back into Daniel, uh, and you see Daniel having this dream of the 70 weeks uh, of years, uh, prophesying very closely uh, to the time that Christ would actually arrive. You look through the rest of the story of Daniel uh, and the different things that he went through, the lion's den and everything like that. Through that, he ended up being the head of the Magi in that nation, which was to the east of this. And so he was the head of the Magi as the nation of Israel was in exile. When the exile ended, uh, part of the nation, part of the Jews decided to stay in Babylon. And so here, Daniel was there, the head of the Magi, teaching the wise men of that, possibly even teaching uh, these prophecies about the 70 weeks of years, the promise of the coming Messiah. And so potentially, these wise men or these Magi, which Daniel had been the head of the Magi uh, in that book, were possibly through this studying lineage uh, and realizing this is about the right time. Let's look for something to be happening. There's a star we don't recognize. This might be it. Let's follow it. Uh, and again, a lot of that is, is kind of conjecture uh, because it's not specific in Matthew chapter 2, but it seems to fit together with God's idea of his plan and orchestrating, telling Daniel when the time would be. Uh, and then the order that he was the head of seems to be the same order that came uh, to visit uh, the newborn king. 
Jeremiah chapter 31 prophesied that there would be a great wailing of children at the time of the Messiah's birth. Uh, Herod fulfilled this by having the children, the boys killed in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. This happened uh, because in Hosea, it was prophesied that Jesus would be called out of Egypt. And in order to avoid Herod, in Matthew chapter 2, Joseph take his newborn son, Jesus, and fled to Egypt in order to avoid uh, the killing that Herod had been doing. And so all of this is, is just part of the design that God has. And we're just talking about the birth of Christ. The, the, the promised arrival of the Messiah, how God has designed all of this to happen in order for him to come to live a perfect life, to die for our sins so that we might be reconciled. All orchestrated and nothing was able to get in the way uh, to prevent it, to cause it to hesitate, to be postponed. It was all according to God's timing. As we consider that and, and this wonder of Christmas, you also realize that us meeting here this morning was also prophesied. That us being the church, that us being gathered together, our, our very existence right now. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, uh, talking again about uh, Jesus coming from David. It says, on that day, the root of Jesse, uh, which was David's father, will stand. So the root of Jesse pointing forward to Jesus. Uh, so Jesus will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. And so this aspect of Jesus Christ coming, being the Messiah, drawing people to himself, we find fulfilled in Romans 15, verse 12. That there would be a time when God's people would not just be Israel, but that of all nations as the church. We see uh, Jesus uh, talking about this as the church in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now this was a momentous aspect in Jesus' relationship with his apostles. All of these prophecies that we've read up to this point have been pointing forward to Jesus coming in order to redeem mankind. But here, there's a pivot point that takes place. Jesus talks to his apostles, talks to them, and says, who do you think I am? Peter affirms, you are the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for and looking at these promises throughout Scripture for thousands of years. Verse 17, Jesus replies to this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, now this rock that he's talking about um, plays on the word uh, that sounds similar to Peter uh, in the language, but on this rock that I will build my church, he's talking about the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is what the church is built on, not the lineage of leadership from Peter going forward, but rather on Christ, on Jesus being the Messiah and redemption coming through him. 
So upon this confession, verse 18, Jesus is now prophesying. Upon this understanding that all of humanity, their only hope is through Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. This was Jesus prophesying about us here today. What, what causes us to gather this morning? It's to glorify Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We're here for no other purpose. If we try to build our church on social justice, no, the rock, the confession of Jesus Christ, then the gates of hell will not overpower it. If we try and build it on any other thing, human rights, environmental concerns. There's so many different things and so many different problems within the world today. If we would try to build the church on the identity of any single one of those things, it's sinking sand and we would fall on our faces. The church that hell will not overpower is built upon the rock of the confession of Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the only way to salvation is through him. And here he's prophesying that the church is going to be built through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we sit here in this room some 2,000 years after Jesus himself walked on the earth as evidence of this prophecy coming true. I just think of what has happened where Christians were persecuted in Rome to the point of violent and obscene deaths. And it could not be overcome. You think of dark times within the church where, where it was twisted to the point uh, where you could not read the Bible in your own language. And those that tried to have it translated into the vernacular were actually killed. Like that much distortion had happened. It could still not be overcome because of that. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And God ensuring that this prophecy of the gates of hell not overpowering the church built on the confession of Jesus Christ as the Messiah would not be overcome. Further prophecy took place uh, in Joel uh, about the church. Peter explains this in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, he says, Peter stood up with the eleven. So this is after Jesus Christ uh, ascended into heaven. Uh, he told them to wait uh, in that area until they receive power from on high, the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so they're waiting. We find Pentecost happening. Uh, and then after that, they're kind of spreading out a little bit. And people are, uh, that weren't there are looking at uh, the display that's happening as they're speaking in tongues and praising God. And they're like, these guys are drunk. Like, this doesn't make sense. Uh, and so Peter then stands up in order to explain what had happened. In verse 14, fellow Jews and all of you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Pay attention to my words, for these people are not drunk, uh, as you suppose, since it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Or in other words, this prophecy in Joel is now fulfilled. In the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we see a fulfillment from Joel saying in the day of the church, in the last days, as God is using the Holy Spirit to empower, equip, and guide the church, these things will be happening. And we're part of that lineage. It's one of the reasons that God has created us, called us, rescued us, equipped us, and empowered us to be here. Our lives are not just this mundane existence of putting in a 40-hour work week uh, and then trying to earn some vacation and just getting by from year to year, but, but rather we have a place within prophetic history of Scripture calling us to be the church that hell cannot overcome because we carry the very light of Jesus Christ equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are to take place within this and the prophecy that's to come in the future. We're part of this story. Matthew chapter 24. Again, this is Jesus uh, prophesying or is telling about what's going to happen in, in the future. In verse 3, while he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when these things will happen. He'd been kind of talking about the, the end days. What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In verse 4, Jesus replied to them, uh, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. I just think about some of these things and what we've seen in our history. Uh, we've seen World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, and uh, how many others I could list off that have happened just within the last hundred years. We sit here and we take a look at, don't be deceived because many will come to you saying that I am the Messiah. We don't certainly see people popping up all over the place and saying, I'm the Messiah, follow me. We've got some crazy cults and Kool-Aid and the disastrous results of those things. But we certainly see within our culture false messiahs arising and saying, if we only had this, humanity would be better. There's talk beginning about a great reset for the world. And that if we could just grab onto this opportunity that COVID has grasped us and have the great reset, everything will be better. It's a, a false messiah being presented, even though it is not a person saying, follow me. It is a mindset through the wisdom of man that's saying, hey, let's all follow this and everything's going to be better. It is not salvation because it is not Jesus Christ as the Messiah come to die for our sins and resurrected for reconciliation to God. Our eternal salvation is only through that, not any plan or scheme that a human can come up with. So watch out. 
that no one deceives us. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah. Or many different ideas or theories will come and deceive many. We talked about wars. The end is not yet. Nation will rise up against nation in verse 7. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things are the beginning of the labor pains. In Luke chapter 22, a, a parallel passage to this, it talks about pestilences. And, and here we've had COVID just disrupt all of 2020. Again, these things are the beginning. Luke says, don't be concerned because you know that these must take place. Verse 9, then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. This is happening in other nations around our world right now. And we can see uh, the persecution of uh, Christians even within this own country as we stand in resistance uh, to the wave of a moral revolution that wants to reject everything that God has told us. This persecution. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away. Fall away from faith. Betray one another. Hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. I just, again, this is my viewpoint here. Uh, I look at the different things, the different videos and the riots that we've been seeing and the utter lack of love for one another. I'm not talking uh, about uh, the reasons or the things that our people are trying to change. I'm keeping that completely separate. I'm simply talking about as people have disagreements with one another, how they're treating one another as less than human because of a lack of of love. The love of many will grow cold. Verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. This is the time that we're living in. Prophesied by Jesus himself. Our lives are so much more than just a mundane humanity of simply trying to exist on this earth. But we're called to partake in this wondrous plan of God that began in Genesis chapter 3, pointing forward to Jesus coming, and then pointing forward to the church existing and doing the work of Christ himself as this word is spread throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then we look forward to the end coming and we look to this prophecy in Revelation chapter 21. And as I read this, consider every other prophecy that we've read has already come true. That God's word is not returned void. That everything has been orchestrated by him down to his prophesied detail so that it would take place. The fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem happened because there was a census. God orchestrated that. That Jesus would be called out of Egypt. Orchestrated. All of that orchestrated, brought together. Who can go against God's plan? And then this is the prophecy that he gives us in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now, how is this going to take place? I, I don't know. From my perspective right now, I, I feel like Joseph sitting there saying, uh, how is Mary pregnant right now and, and yet a virgin? It doesn't make sense to me exactly how it's going to happen. But it was revealed and it came true because God spoke all things into existence and make his plan come together. So, so how exactly is a new heaven, new earth, and, and a holy city coming down? Uh, I look forward to the day when we see this fulfilled and we'll be like, oh, that makes sense now. This is really cool. But we can rest in the promise that it will happen. Because he says it will happen. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. Not just walk on this dusty planet for 30 years when Jesus was here. But we will live with God himself. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. Verse 4. I, I love verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear of sorrow. Every tear of pain. Of suffering. Of the things that we've gone through on this earth that have been so hard. All wiped away. Death will be no more. I, we can't even fathom that. Death is just a part of our regular life. Oh, we, we turn on the near news and we just hear the death toll of, of what's happening with COVID this year. We've all been to a funeral. Imagine a world and a life where death is just simply gone. And that's what he promises. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Sin, death, darkness, all gone. And God's going to live with us. Like this is the promise that he has given to us. And if we can anchor us ourselves in this truth, then, then regardless of what comes, regardless of what the last 20 days of 2020 throws at us or whatever 2021 is or 22 or regardless of what comes, we know that everything is anchored in God's promises and that his promises will come true. It's all brought together by his sovereignty and, and that we are called to be a part of his great plan. This morning, uh, as we end, uh, we get to participate uh, in part of another prophecy through communion. Uh, and so if you want to get your, your cups ready, I, I did it ahead of time uh, for myself so I don't have to pull out the knife again uh, in order to make that work. Uh, we'll have the verse on the screen as well, but if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, we're going to go to Mark chapter 14 for communion this morning. Uh, we're going to read the whole passage first, reflect on it for a second, and then partake together. One of the reasons that we do this is to declare prophecy. 
Jesus instituted this the night before he died for us to continue on in a tangible reminder of his death and sacrifice for us. But with it, he also made a promise. In Mark chapter 14, we'll start in verse uh, 22. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant which poured out for many. Truly, and here's the promise, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so here's Jesus partaking of the fruit of the vine that he spoke into existence with his friends and with his disciples, saying, this is the last time that I'm going to touch this until you are with me in celebration at the table in the kingdom of heaven. And so we partake of this today, proclaiming that that promise is true and that we trust in it. And so let's partake of the bread, recognizing his body given up for us. And then to partake of the cup, which represents his blood that was prophesied and promised to be poured out for our sins for reconciliation. As we partake of this, remembering his promise that he's not going to participate in this himself until we are with him at the completion of this world. Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word that so much of it points towards your great and wondrous plan. A plan that we could not fathom or understand as it unfolds, but we can look back and we can see all the promises pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and our rescue. We can see the promises that he made uh, about after he left that there would be the helper, the Holy Spirit given to the church to us as his representative body on earth to equip us to carry that light of the hope of the gospel. Father, we recognize and acknowledge that we are participants in that promise. And we ask for your forgiveness when we do not live that way. And we pray that you would help us to live, to believe, and trust that that is true and that you've called us to much more than this life just on this earth. And Father, we rest in the promises and the prophecies which are yet to come of that great and glorious day when we get to stand with you, when we get to worship you face to face, that your, your dwelling will be with us, that we can sit at a celebration table with you, partaking of the vine and the great feast. We do not know exactly what that will look like because no mind can conceive, no eye can see, and no ear can hear. We cannot fathom what you have planned and prepared for us. But we know that it's good and we trust you. Give us the strength to follow you.
and help us to worship you in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.